It's kind of weird to be back with you guys after being off a couple of weeks, um, vacation and enjoying Florida and the sun and all kind of stuff. Uh, but it's good to be back because um, I just kind of want to bring you up to date where we are with this series we just began a couple of weeks ago. Back last summer, we actually began uh, talking about the book of Acts. Uh, I think one of the most significant books in all the New Testament, probably in all the Bible, because it tells us about, not only about uh, the church, it, which is us, but it, tol- it talks in real terms and describes in real terms people who make up the church and, and how God worked through, through them, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to, uh, to make a difference in the world. And, and it, it describes people and, and all the realities of life. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. It doesn't do any of those things. So we covered the first five chapters last summer, and then I told you we'd come back to that, and we did uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it just worked out that when we looked at the schedule, I was going to be gone. And so I appreciate Chris uh, starting back in the series uh, in chapter 6 a couple of weeks ago, as talking about the first seven verses in chapter 6 that dealt with a real important uh, fact that as the church is, if the church is to be the, what the church needs to be, is it involves lots of people. It's not just a few key leaders, but there was a th- problem that arose in the church. And what happened was is that he dealt with it by people stepping up. And so today I would encourage you to step up. Uh, as we talk about our ministry fair here, one of the things that, that you can do is to realize that it takes all the part, all parts of the body of Christ to be involved to uh, do the ministry of the church, not just a few folks. Um, and so that, that was the first thing. And then last week, uh, Chris had the daunting task of uh, trying to cover probably one of the most extensive passages that we'll look at, probably the most lengthy passages we'll look at during all this series, is because it dealt with one person, uh, uh, a large starting with verse 8 of chapter 6, through the first part of chapter 8, the story of Stephen. Uh, uh, Stephen, a man who uh, spoke uh, for God, and, and uh, he was uh, one of the first... Uh, um, uh, they call them deacons, I guess you call them, uh, persons who led early in the church as far as serving. And, and Chris um, spoke about and then shared out of the message that he, sh- he shared before the religious leaders about what Stephen shared. And, and there was many, many things there to talk about. And then at the end of that, he mentioned also that there was also the outcome of that begins in verses 54 of chapter 7 and goes through chapter verse 8 of uh, verse 4 of chapter 8. And I want to go back and look at that today because as I was looking at that, I realized that, you know, uh, you can't cover everything in one, you know, like three chapters of scripture in, in one, um, one sermon. And so, uh, I thought if I didn't deal with this today, that I'd be finding myself dealing with it later because of what I call it, it's, it deals with an issue that's kind of an elephant in the room for us as Christians. I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about why that is such a, why it is the way it is. But I want us to first this morning to go back and uh, remind ourselves that what Acts is about as a whole really goes back to chapter 1, uh, verse 8, which says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The thing that we talked about back last summer as we began the study of Acts is that the, this key verse, Acts 1-8, always keep this in mind. It's like the beginning of the letter. Uh, it's the thing that says, this is what I'm going to talk about. Uh, as it talks about it, it says, it, it describes who the church is. The church, we as people, are to be people who are to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We don't do it in our own power. And, and we're to be witnesses uh, to people not only here but throughout the earth. And, and as we see that, we will see that fleshed out throughout the book of Acts, the story of Acts. And it's the story that guides who we are to be and what God wants us to be as a church as well. 
And so this, this morning, before we look at Scripture, I'd ask that we would pray for a moment that God would not only uh, allow us to understand this, but understand how to apply the Scripture that we're going to look at today to our lives in a real way. Let's pray. God, this morning, I would just pray that you would uh, open our minds and our hearts to you, uh, that we would understand clearly uh, that as we look at the book of Acts, and particularly as we began to look at the stories uh, of the people in the book of Acts from here and forward, we will see one thing that's underlying a lot of things there, and that's the idea that, God, you allow suffering in our lives sometimes to further your kingdom, but also to grow us up. And so often, God, we don't want to mention that because we don't live that way. We have this different theology that we have in our culture, and it's, it pushes away from that, God. And we have to admit that, that any time we see any type of thing that's any, the least bit painful, we want to push away as far as possible. And it's not, God, that you want us to go out and seek pain and suffering, but because we live in a world, God, that is full of sin, and the fact that we are sinners ourselves, we have to realize that, that those effects will come into play in our lives, whether we're believers or not believers. And so we first have to realize that, God. And so we ask that you would help us to realize, and we know that. But God, help us to understand how you use those things. And how you use the good and the bad in our lives, God, to bring about the changes you want to see in us and in the world. And help us, God, to understand... The two different paths we'll talk about today in following you and how they affect this understanding of the things that happen to us in life. So guide us, God, this morning as we look at your word once again. May we not only understand, but may we apply it to our lives in such a way that would change us and ultimately that we could be witnesses to the world around us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you every week to bring a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. You're welcome to not only pick one up, but we encourage you not only pick one up, but also to, you can take one if you don't have a Bible, okay? So feel free to do that. This morning, we're going to look at the passage uh, Chris mentioned last week, uh, at the la- end of part of chapter 7, verse 54, th- and uh, beginning to, uh, with verse 54 of chapter 7 through chapter 8, verse 4. Uh, after Stephen had, had, had preached this message, which made everybody mad, uh, this is what it says. This was the outcome. This is what happened after the message he preached and Chris shared last week, that one of the things that happened in the message is that, that, that simply Stephen just simply shared truth. And the problem was that the religious people couldn't deal with the truth because they had focused all their attention upon that God is in one place, the temple. And Stephen, one of the things that he pushed away from is he said, hey, it's not just about the temple, that God is everywhere. And it shows, he showed throughout history that God had been in various places, even in the life of the Jewish people, the Israelites. And so he was saying, hey guys, no longer can we, with, can we just kind of hold on to, to, to God right here in our one little place. And we, God wants to be everywhere. And it's why it's said in, in Acts 1-8 that God wants us to be witnesses everywhere, not just at home, but everywhere. And so we dealt with some other issues. But at the end of that, this is what happened in verse 54. I just want to read it and want to comment on some things. And I really don't want to spend a whole lot of time in, uh, going through this passage today, but I want to illustrate what is the outcome of some of the things that are here. Verse 54, when they heard this, when they heard this, the things that Stephen said, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, what did it say in Acts 1-8? 
It says, you will be my witnesses when? When you get every, when you get all the right answers, right? When you, when you have a lot of training, right? When you have everything in your life, you get, you studied for like years and years. No one did say that. It says, you'll be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit will be in you. So here's, here's an example of that. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to the heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing to the right hand of God. And he says, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing to the right hand of God. <laughs> And you would think that would be an encouraging thing, right? Uh, man, I mean, a vision of God. Of, and it was something that Jesus himself, if you look back just a few, you know, back in, in the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus saying a very similar thing. But this is what the religious leaders did in verse 57. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. And they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It's kind of an interesting term there for he died. He fell asleep. It sounds very peaceful, doesn't it? And then in verse eight, verse one, uh, chapter eight, verse one, and then Saul was there giving approval to his death. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, they dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Last week, uh, Chris and, uh, spoke about this, this message that Stephen preached. And, and it's, it, part of the thing in the message was is that Stephen's ministry, Stephen's message, opened the door theologically for the world mission of the church by showing that the temple was not necessary anymore, that God didn't reside in one place. But in a, in a real sense here, now that the outcome of this is not only does it open a door theologically, understanding about God, it also uh, opened the door geographically. Logistically, using a current term, for the gospel, because the people, because of the persecution, because of the persecution and the suffering, all of a sudden the people people are scattered throughout. It's the word "scattered" is comes out of a Greek word "diaspora," and it means basically scattered as a seed. And so, and so, it opened the door for this purpose that that God talked about, Luke talked about in Acts chapter one eight, to actually happen. And as we go through Acts, one of the things, this, this, this elephant in the room thing that we have to talk about today, because I want us to deal with it now, so we'll understand it throughout the book of Acts, is the fact that Acts teaches us very clearly that God uses persecution and suffering to advance the gospel. That being full of the Spirit doesn't always mean about some miraculous sign happening in your life. Or some kind of wonderful thing happening. It's sometimes the being full of the, you can be full of God's spirit in a real sense and, and still go through suffering and persecution. And why it's the elephant in the room? Because that is not a cultural teaching that we deal with because, and I want to share with you something that's really great. I love it. I love my, I've started going to, um, uh, men's fraternity on Saturday morning, a small group of guys that meets together. And yesterday, I did not know this when I went to men's fraternity, but I ended up that that group and what we talked about yesterday is the core of my message today. <laughs> I totally changed the thrust of where I was going yesterday morning. I don't ever do that. 
But uh, we listened to a message uh, from a guy named John Lynch. And uh, it was a powerful message, had a, gr- a lot of great under, a lot of good, good stuff going on there. And so I just want to encourage and tell you that a lot of the stuff, the illustrations I'm going to use today, I'm going like, yes! Thank you for my men's group. Thank you for my leader. Thank you for John Lynch, whoever he is. But the issue was, is that, uh, you know, it, it really describes this whole thing and it, it, it describes this whole, the, the underlying factor here and why that we have a struggle with this whole thing of suffering, why we push away from it so much and why we, you know, we don't not just embrace it, but why we, how we understand what it means in the life of the believer. Because the gospel teaches us very clearly, well, you know, when, when the Bible teaches, it says this in Hebrews 12 too, it says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne. You know, if we've seen the passion of the Christ, you've seen the suffering that Jesus went through, right? Was Jesus in the center of God's will? Was Jesus full of God's spirit? He was God. And then we read other passages like Philippians 3.10, which says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know those things. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. I mean, that is, that's Paul talking about, hey man, you know, I want to, I want to know who Christ is. I want to be intimate with him and I want to be close to him and I want to share in all the things. And part of that is sharing in his sufferings and understanding that's normative. In the Christian life. But we have this elephant in the room. And the elephant is, is, how does suffering fit into my understanding of God? Because the culture affects our view of God. This is the illustration that I, that I heard yesterday. And, and I thought it was so, so good. Because in our culture, uh, we have this kind of like, and we merge culture and, and, and our Christian theology sometimes. We kind of have this thing called Santa Claus theology. Santa Claus theology, and, and it comes out of a song, a song that is, uh, we sing all the time, and we sing it with lots of gusto at Christmas. You know what it's called? It's called Santa Claus is coming to town. And we li- listen to that song, and it's words like, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout. And you know the word, words to it? Because I'm telling you why, Santa Claus is coming to town. I mean, this powerful being, we better pay attention to him. Because he's making a list. He's checking it twice. You know the words? And he's going to find out who's naughty and nice. And you better watch out because Santa Claus is coming to town. And, and, and And he knows when you've been sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He knows when you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. So you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. And we take that and we're going like, oh, it's just a crazy song. No, it's not. It's the way we live our lives. And and we, we throw that same idea upon God so often because we believe that our value is based on what you've done right and wrong. You know, it's like Santa Claus, man. If I want Santa Claus to do good stuff for me, i got to do good stuff for him. If I want to live kind of a nice, smooth, good life, all i got to do is do all the right things. And things will be good. So I better act right. And if things are not right, 
Well, I better learn to please this all-knowing, omniscient, powerful being. And I'm, sometimes we get confused whether it's Santa Claus or God. Because we believe, in a real sense, in our culture, in our world, that acceptance is based on performance. And even when we're confronted with the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, we, we bring in our Santa Claus theology. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, the Bible could not be any clearer. It's not even fuzzy. It's not one of the gray areas of Scripture that says, you know, well, coming to Christ is about performance. It never says that. It says clearly in Scripture that God has done everything for us that we need to have a relationship with, with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, who died upon a cross for our sins. It's not based on performance. But we still can't believe it's true. It's, we, that's what we talked about in men's fraternity yesterday morning. Is it too, you know, is there anything in your life that sounds too good to be true? Most things are. You know, like timeshares, Amway, just go down the list, you know, all kind of things. But so often we, we come into the Christian life and we kind of, we kind of twist what the Bible says because we can't believe that we simply have to trust in God. Because it's kind of like this. And this is another illustration I found. I thought it was great. And I want to share this with you. Because as we come into the Christian life and we said, you know, I want to follow Christ. I want to follow his plan. I want to be a Christian. I want to do this. We, we begin to walk the road. And, and we come to a place and there's two signs on the road. Just two signs. And they're directional signs. And the first sign that we come to is a sign that says, okay, this road's going this way. And the first sign says, pleasing God. Pleasing God, that's the first sign on the road. And we're going like, okay, that's that's legitimate. Yeah, I want to please God. How many of you want to please God? Anybody here want to please God? That's very legitimate, right? Okay, and we're thinking, okay, the other sign will be what? Displeasing God? No, the other sign, for some strange reason, says this. It says, trusting God. Trusting God. And we're not really sure what to do with that because it's not a whole lot about us. And so we see these two signs together, this pleasing God and trusting God, and we're going, and we're going in the opposite directions and we're going like, can I do them both? But really what these two signs represent is, is the primary motivations of your heart and my heart in following God. And I want to tell you this morning, only one of them works. According to this. So, I come to the place in life, I have this Santa Claus theology in my life, you know, about you better watch out. And so I still can't get by with the thing, well, it must be too good to be true. So I say, you know, I'm going to try the pleasing God road. And I go down the pleasing God road, and as I choose the road of pleasing God, I go down that road, and I come to a building on that road. And as I come to that building, there's a door, and above the door, there's a little sign that says this, striving to be all that God wants me to be. Striving to be all that God wants me to be. And I'm going, hey, that's it. It sounds like the Marines. Be all you can be. This has to be the right road. 
And so I look at the doorknob, and on the doorknob is written these words, self-effort. And so I turn the doorknob. And as I turn the doorknob and go in the room, there's this huge room of seemingly happy people. And they're all talking and talking and talking, and they all seem very happy. And remember, this is, this is the room of striving to be that all God, that all God wants me to be. These are people trying to be what God wants them to be. This is the good room, right? And a host comes up to me and he says to me, welcome to the room of good intentions. And I'm thinking, man, this is great. This is exactly where I need to be. Because I have good intentions. I want to be all that God wants me to be. And so I kind of start walking around the room and I start asking people, how are you doing? How are you doing? Everybody's going, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. You fine? I'm fine. We're all fine. Everybody's fine. And finally, the host looks at me and asks me this question. How are you doing? And I have good intentions, and so I simply be on, I'm honest, and I simply say this. Well, you know, <clears throat> I've been struggling a little bit. I, I have these issues in my life. I'm not really sure sometimes. I'm uncertain about things. And the host kind of looks at me and kind of gives me this kind of, you know, look like you shouldn't be saying those things. And then the host hands me a mask. And I put on the mask. And after I put on the mask, they ask me the question again, how are you doing? And so I say, what do I say? I'm fine. I'm fine. And I'm going, well, you know, this is the room of good intentions. And, and I want to be all God that wants me to be. And so I try to hang around here for a while and... And I notice a banner on the wall. And the banner on the wall says, Working on my sin to achieve an intimate relationship with God. And I'm going, yeah, that's it. I want to work on my sin so I can achieve an intimate relationship with God. And because I'm in this group and they all seem fired up and everybody seems fine. I know, well, maybe this is it. Because if I keep working at it and working at it and working at it, what's going to happen is, is it'll get better and better and better. But I find myself being in, in the room of good intentions for a long period of time. And after a period of time, you know, nobody tells me that day after day, just because I have these good intentions, that doesn't tell me that day after day, there's still going to be every day boatloads of sin and suffering that's going to come into my life because I live in a real world that's broken. And while it feels right and I'm sincere about everything, And I'm determined to be all that God wants me to be. As time passes, I start to notice things. And the things I start to notice is this. Some people seem cynical. Even though everybody says I'm fine. And some people are tired. And some people seem alone. And and if you catch them off guard and they don't notice anybody's watching, you will notice some unbelievable pain in their faces. And I noticed that a lot of the conversations are superficial. But I decided I'm going to grip my teeth because I'm going to do this. So I try harder. But I find that the longer I spend in the room of good intentions, the less close I feel to God. And after a while, I just give up. 
And I go out of the room and I stumble out of the room and I go down the road and get back on the path again. And I come to those two signs once again. You remember what they were? Pleasing God. And I've already tried that road. And the other road says trusting God. And I'm going like, isn't there a third way? That's the only choice. And so I go down that road. Because I don't even understand what it means to trust God. I mean, what's it mean to trust God? That doesn't seem very heroic. It's not about me. What can I do? Other than just simply trust. But I go down the road and I come to another large building again. And and, and there's another door. And above that door there has a sign that says this. Living out of who God says I am. Living out of who God says I am. And there's a doorknob that says humility on it. And so I said, okay, I'll try this door. And I open the door and I go in. and And I've tried everything else and I've tried so hard. And I've meant so, I've really tried hard. But I try this door and I, and I go in and I open the door and there's this another crowded room full of people, but they're quiet. And a hostess greets me and she says, you know, welcome to the room of grace. And she asked me the question that I was asking the other room. How are you? And I hesitate because I've asked, I've answered that question before and I've gotten shot down. So I answer hesitantly. I'm fine. And then everybody stays quiet in the room. And they're looking at me. And I don't like it because I feel judged. And so after an uncomfortable few minutes, I finally give the courage and I, and I yell out, I yell out, I am not fine! I haven't been fine for a long time and I'm tired and I'm confused and I'm afraid and I feel guilty and I'm lonely and I'm sad most of the time. And nothing seems to be right. And if you knew half of my daily thoughts, you would not even want me to be in your little room. So there, I'm not fine. Thanks for asking. And as I reach for the doorknob to walk out of the room, I hear from the back of the room a voice. (laughs) I don't know what's going on over there. (laughs) But as I walk out of the room, and you know, after being frustrated and saying I'm not fine, and saying all these things, as I reach for the doorknob, I hear this voice yelling from the back of the room, Is that all you got? You know, I'll take your confusion and your guilt and your bad thoughts and raise you my compulsive, compulsive sin and chronic lower back pain. And I'm up to my ears in debt. I mean, you better step it up, buddy, if you want to be in my league. And the hostess comes over to me, puts her arm around me, and our host comes over to me, puts her arm around me and says, I, I think that he's saying you're welcome here. And as I live in the room of grace, I discover a group of warm and loving people who are painfully real. 
And there's not a mask to be seen anywhere. And I notice another banner on the wall behind me that says this. Standing with God, with my sin in front of us, trusting God, and working on it together. See, we have two choices. We can try to live out of the Santa Claus theology, which leads us to try to just please God, please God, please God, which never works. Or we can do what the Scripture says. You know what the Scripture says in Hebrews eleven six. It says, without faith, without faith, and you could put in the word trust. It's a deep abiding trust. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And you know what the religious leaders hated about Stephen? Because they were going down the road of pleasing God. And he pointed that out to them in a dramatic fashion. Because Stephen was going down the road of trusting God. And so when along came the suffering and the pain, he realized he was a sinful man in a sinful world. And it was going to come his way. And in the midst of the difficulties and the things that came his way, he didn't see it as something that was pushing him away from God. Matter of fact, it drew him closer to God. Because when he saw the the most painful thing in his life, when they were accusing him, what did he say? He said he was full of the Holy Spirit and saw the vision of God before him. It drew him close. The pain in his life drew him closer to God. See, one of the things I think that the, that the book of Acts is teaching us, and it's going to teach us throughout this, is that, that a normal, spirit-filled Christian life is not a life freed from all pain, but it's a f- place where God takes whatever it is that we have in life and can use it for good. I love what Rick Warren says. He always has a little quote. He says, God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. I believe that. We can waste a hurt. Or we can understand that God will use the hurt that he allows in our life to not only help us, but to help others. We're going to see that throughout the book of Acts as we go through this. So the question I have for you and for me this morning is this. Which road do we choose? Do we choose just simply trying to please God? And let me tell you, that's the road to frustration. Because every day in your life and my life, we're going to have wheelbarrows of sin, some of it ours. I mean, last night some people were probably shocked when, when I, I was, it was such an illustration of that last night in our married life live. We had a young couple come and share with us the story of a real marriage. Marriage that had its ups and its downs. And they were open and honest. About that, and even the paint, but they would say, and, 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 and Jeremy and Michelle last night that shared, they would have said to me before, you know, while I would never choose to go the way we did, God has taught us more through this pain than He could ever have taught, teach us through anything else. Folks, you know, it doesn't mean that you're, God's far away when you're going through a painful situation. And it doesn't mean that God's close to you when everything's going well. That's life. 
The reality is that God wants us to understand that he takes all these things. And when you're filled with filled with God's spirit, he helps you to go through those and see them in a different way and embrace those in a different way than you have before. And he uses them for his good and to bring his glory. I hope as we examine all the stories in Acts, the stories of real people who lived real lives, but lived them in the power of God's spirit, that you will begin to understand and grasp. It will give you hope. That if you're going through painful situations in your life, that it doesn't mean God is far from you. God wants to help you through that. He wants to allow His Spirit to work in your life. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.